I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. How are we doing, everybody? Welcome back to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast, part of the 90 Min Football Network. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simeon. It's our World Cup Daily Series, and we're going to be reviewing today's World Cup action. And what a day of action it was. Now, there were a couple of nil-nil draws. You have to get that out of the way nice and early. They were a little bit underwhelming in terms of what those games produced. And I'm talking about the game between Denmark and Tunisia. And I'm talking about that game between Poland and Mexico. But we had also today possibly the biggest shock result in World Cup history. We're going to be talking Argentina 1, Saudi Arabia 2. How many people saw that coming? Very, very few. We're also going to be talking Olivier Giroud as his France side win 4-1 against Australia. And Olivier Giroud draws level in terms of his international goal record with Arsenal great Thierry Omri. You have to feel that Olivier Giroud is going to surpass him now. And it could well happen at these World Cup finals. Olivier Giroud is on course to be France's all-time greatest goal scorer. We'll talk a little bit about that as well. And of course, we'll react to the news breaking this evening that England's Harry Kane is going to undergo a scan on an ankle problem that could potentially rule him out of the remainder of the tournament. That would be a big, big blow for Gareth Southgate's side. Harry Kane's annual ankle injury happens every season. We'll get into that uh, all on this uh, show, all on this edition of our World Cup Daily Podcast. Uh, big hello to everybody joining us, Stephen, uh, to Nav, uh, to Sweet in there as well. Hope you guys are all good. Thank you all so, so much for joining me at these ungodly hours. Big hello to Noah, uh, to Roger and to Johan as well. Okay, let's do it. Look, there's only really one place to start and that's that game between Argentina and Saudi Arabia. What a cracker it turned out to be. Very few people, as I say, saw that coming. Nobody, I don't think, thought that Saudi Arabia had a chance. I mean, there was an interview going around on social media, which I saw earlier today, of a Saudi Arabian fan sort of telling the reporter that actually he'd arrived at the stadium hoping that they could limit Argentina to just the three goals, that they could uh, come away with some sort of respectable result and that that would be enough for those that had made the trip. But Saudi Arabia went one better than that, two better than that. They didn't just earn a point, they earned all three points and they did it coming from behind. And as Johan says in the chat, talk about a game to ignite the World Cup. You need a game like that, don't you? You need a game that captures the imagination of the fans. You need a game that, okay, look, Argentina fans will be upset and disappointed and, and sort of trying to conduct some sort of post-mortem as to work out how on earth, on earth this happened. But for everybody else, it's an underdog story. It's a, a shock. Everybody loves a shock. Um, you know, and and it's something that, as as Johan rightly says, has ignited the World Cup, I think. I mean, I certainly felt something this morning that I hadn't felt in this tournament just yet. And that's coming from someone who actually would quite like to see Argentina go on and win it. I mean, I woke up this morning and, uh, you know, I, I, I set off for the 19-min studio for us to do our World Cup uh, show, which was due to be live at midday. And because I was so desperate to watch the Argentina-Saudi Arabia game, instead of going in uh, later on, I decided to go from early and I got there for half nine. 
and basically sat in the studio by myself like an absolute Larry watching the game because I didn't want to miss Argentina's first game of the World Cup. I didn't, in my wildest dreams, think that Saudi Arabia would win it. Um, and and based on the first half especially, I thought it was going to be a walk in the park uh, for Lionel Scaloni's side because, you know, they were so in control. They were so dominant. Saudi Arabia were playing this high defensive line, which to me made absolutely zero sense given the quality that Argentina have, not just to pick out a pass and split open a defence with the likes of Lionel Messi and, and various others in that team, but also the fact that they've got a striker like Lautaro Martinez, who's clever and can make those runs in behind. And people like Angel Di Maria, who have been around the block on multiple occasions, will expose you when you play that way. So I thought it was a little bit of a, a dangerous way to approach the game uh, for the Saudis. And I actually thought that they were incredibly fortunate, um, you know, to go in at the break, just to go down. Obviously, Argentina had the ball in the net a couple more times but the VAR stepped in and correctly ruled out those goals. Argentina, though, were a little bit fortunate in the sense of the penalty that they were awarded. Look, I think it was a penalty. I think when you watch that incident, I think you can see that there's clearly a holding of the forward, a holding of the attacker. There's clearly zero intent to get to the ball. There's clearly zero understanding on the defender's part of where the ball actually is. So I think it is a foul, right? But the problem is, is that this happens all the time. It happens in penalty boxes everywhere. And you get to the point where you go, OK, um, you know, was that going to lead to anything? Like, for example, was the ball in the vicinity of that attacker? Was that attacker going to get to the ball? Did the attacker stand any chance of getting to that ball if he wasn't fouled? And if the answer is no, then I'm actually OK with that being just allowed to pass because what I think you're doing is you're setting a dangerous precedent. Now, if you remember a couple of seasons ago, we had a period right at the start of a Premier League campaign where there were penalties given pretty much every week for pulling in the box, for fouls in the penalty area when people were jostling for position. And everybody used to say, well, if you start giving yellow cards and penalties for those things, and, and in some instances, red cards, it's a deterrent. It will stop people doing it. And actually what happened was people didn't stop doing it because they've been doing it since the beginning of football. And it's very difficult to turn those habits off. But what we ended up having was a ridiculous number of penalties. And I think we're in danger of going down that route in this World Cup. Now, you know, I've always defended VAR. I've always said that, you know, VAR is, is not a problem. The people that are operating it and the fact that most of them are so ridiculously incompetent is actually the bigger issue. But in that instance where I don't think the the foul impacted anything in the game, I don't know if I would pull play back for that. And, and where I'm struggling is that there was one, obviously, that England should have got, which they didn't. And then there was one maybe that was softer that was given against England in the same game. Now, I'm not saying this is some sort of conspiracy theory towards England or any other team for that matter. But what I am saying is if you're going to apply that, I want to see it apply consistently. And I just don't have trust and faith in these officials um, that, you know, that they can do that, that they can maintain a level of consistency that most of us would deem uh, adequate at this level. You know, this is the biggest competition in the world. But forget about all the VAR stuff. Forget about, um, you know, Argentina, you know, maybe not being clinical enough in the first half and not being able to put the game to bed as a result. Let's talk about Saudi Arabia and the spirit 
they showed. Now, there's been lots of post-match interviews uh, from Saudi players telling people about the uh, inspiring speech and inspiring talk uh, that they were given by, uh, of course, their manager during the break. Um, and you know what? Fair play to him. You know, uh, is it Herve Renard? Have I said his name right? Let me just, yeah, Herve Renard, I think is the way you pronounce it. I mean, I don't know what he said to them at halftime, but whatever it was, it was absolute magic because Saudi Arabia came out in that second half with so much intent, so much purpose. And, you know, it took them three minutes in the second half. Al Shari, uh, with a really well-taken goal, actually, uh, to put them back on level terms. I thought Christian Romero's part in, in that goal was probably questionable, probably could have done more, probably should have done more. Uh, and then, of course, Aldasari on 53 minutes scored an, a brilliant goal to put Saudi Arabia in front and send the stadium absolutely wild. Now, my colleague Scott Saunders was out in Qatar and was at this game and posted a couple of videos on social media. Um, you got to check him out just to get a, a vibe and understanding of what the atmosphere was like. There was a lot of fans that made that trip. Granted, it's not the longest trip. It's a much easier trip uh, than it would be for some of us making it from Europe or various other parts of the world. But there were a lot of Saudi fans. Um, they made a lot of noise. Argentina were very well supported as well. I, I read somewhere that these were two of the uh, most supported clubs at the tournament in terms of numbers of tickets sold. And I think it showed there, you know, you put them in a big stadium and and they make a, a, a racket like that. It's brilliant. You know, that's what that's what football's all about. That's what the tournament's all about. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, even when, when Saudi equalise, even when Saudi take the lead, you're still looking at it going, nah, you know, Argentina got way too much firepower. They got way too much quality to lose this. And you just saw, you know, the, the sort of atmosphere change in the stadium. You, you felt that the Saudis that had turned up there probably just being happy to see their side play against a team like Argentina began to believe began to make more noise. And I feel like that transmitted onto the pitch, into those players who fought like lions, to be fair to them. You know, there were clearances off the line. There were strong tackles. They were putting their bodies in the way of anything and everything in a desperate attempt uh, to get all three points. And you can see what it meant to them at the final whistle. You can see what it means to the country because uh, the king of Saudi Arabia has now declared tomorrow, uh, Wednesday that is, as a national holiday in celebration of this victory. This is, you know, is this the biggest World Cup shock ever? I'm not going to say it is. Um, I think it's one of them. It's certainly up there. But for me, I just remember at the time in the 2002 World Cup when Senegal knocked France out, I just remember that being a bigger deal. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I didn't know a lot about Senegal at the time. And I obviously... You know, we've seen Saudi Arabia at many World Cups and, and often they're the whipping boys, but they've been at a lot of these competitions over the years. So the name Saudi Arabia in a World Cup competition is not uh, something unusual. It's not something that we're not used to. It's not an anomaly. Um, but when Senegal came into that competition in 2002, you know, where were they? You know, they weren't uh, a renowned uh, powerhouse of African football in the way that in those days you would say Nigeria were or Cameroon and a little bit later on Ivory Coast, you know, Algeria, Tunisia, even Egypt. They were not in that group. They were not in that group of sides that, you know, were always 
among the strongest in their continent. So, yeah, people will say that um, that this is the biggest shock of all time. I think maybe like, I'm kind of talking myself around now because initially I would say Senegal beating France was the biggest shock. France were the World Cup holders, all of that. Argentina are not the World Cup holders this time. But maybe the fact that Saudi Arabia came from behind rather than taking the lead and then holding on to it, maybe that makes it different. Maybe that adds something in Saudi's favour. Maybe I should be talking about this as the biggest World Cup shock of all time. Let me know in the comments, is this the biggest shock in World Cup history? Let me know in the chat. Let me know your thoughts and I'll come to your comments in just a moment. Let's talk a little bit about uh, Denmark against Tunisia. Now, I missed some of this game, but I did catch up with the highlights. I'm, I think I missed about 20 minutes of the second half uh, while I was travelling home. I tried to time it as best as possible, but thanks to London Transport, uh, I ended up missing around about 20 minutes of this. But from what I saw, I was quite underwhelmed by Denmark. I said on our preview show the other day that I don't really understand the fuss and the hype around them. I think they're a good decent side with a, a good structure who could cause people problems potentially but the amount of people that have said to me over the last few weeks that they're going to win that group that they're going to finish above France and actually quite comfortably was a big surprise to me and actually you know I think a lot of those people were, were proved wrong in the end because um you know I thought that Tunisia were, were more than a match and were arguably the better side for large periods I thought they were more energetic I thought their press was more aggressive. I thought, you know, the, the way they built up play was was really positive. They didn't always make the final pass and they didn't always turn that possession into an, a clear-cut opportunity. And that would be my criticism of Tunisia, if I'm being really harsh. But I thought overall their performance was really, really good. Uh, Nil-nil draw in the end, not an awful lot to discuss, but just a, a shout-out to Tunisia, who I thought were much better than anybody expected and who humbled the Danish side that I think a lot of people feel and felt were going to be a real threat in this tournament. Now, I'm not saying that they won't, not saying that they won't get through, um, you know, and I'm not saying anything like that, but I just feel like, to me, um, you know, the the Tunisians went out there and, and shut down the Danish noise, if you like. And, and to be fair to the Danes, right, that noise is not coming from them, it's coming from everybody else. Um, and that's always, always maybe at times can be even worse so yeah um disappointed in Denmark really uh pleasantly surprised though by Tunisia uh, obviously Mexico and Poland drew nil nil as well earlier today uh, another game that I thought at times looked as though it might burst into life but then you know just settled down a little bit too quickly again for me after each of those moments uh Mexico as you'd expect very energetic very um, attack. Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favourite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Minded, weren't always able to impose themselves on this Poland side, but equally I didn't think Poland were particularly great either. 
Poland did win themselves a penalty kick after the VAR intervened and advised the referee to go over. And I saw, again, some debate and discussion around this decision. For me, this is a clear-cut penalty. It's not so much that the defender puts his leg across Robert Lewandowski because you could argue that he was in that position anyway, uh, a position starting, sorry, ahead of Robert Lewandowski. My issue was with the fact that he had a whole handful of Robert Lewandowski's shirt. And so Poland were awarded a penalty correctly, in my opinion, and upsteps the Polish striker looking to, bidding to, score his first ever World Cup goal. And he fluffed his lines. Really good save from Guillermo Ochoa, um, who is just one of those keepers, isn't he, that's becoming synonymous with the World Cup. And I, I don't really know why. Like It's not like he's achieved an awful lot. But he's just one of those goalkeepers that, pulls off brilliant saves when it really matters. He's, he's a camera goalkeeper, I like to call them. And he's got great hair and he's a, he seems like a great character and a great personality. And so he's someone that's synonymous, I think, with World Cup fans. Uh, but that draw, although it wasn't ideal for either of the, those two sides, it was a result that I think limits the damage faced by Argentina. Because now Argentina are two point, uh, three points behind Saudi Arabia and just two points behind, uh, sorry, one point behind each of these two sides. So it's not a situation for Argentina, despite this shock, that if they don't get their heads, that sorry, it's not a situation that if they get their heads sorted and they can kind of put what happened behind them, that they can't rectify and rectify quite easily. So I'm not fearful of Argentina crashing out of the tournament at this stage. It's important to note that. Um, elsewhere, France, as I mentioned, beat Australia by four goals to one. They too went behind and we wondered if we were going to get two shocks in the same day. But it wasn't to be because France responded very, very well through Adrian Rabio. Uh, really good header, but a really good ball in uh, from Hernandez uh, in a wide position. Another injury problem, though, uh, for the French, because, of course, uh, Lucas Hernandez uh, had to go off with an injury problem. Now, he was replaced by Teo Hernandez, who I think actually is, is probably a better attacking fullback. So it, it, it's a hard one. The two are brothers, right? So a bittersweet uh, moment for the Hernandez family because, you know, one of them had to go off, but the other one came on uh, and played quite well and, and impacted the game well. Goodwin was the man that got the goal for Australia. As I mentioned, Adrian Rabio powering in a header uh, to make it 1-1. And then just five minutes later, Olivier Giroud uh, added a goal that put him to within one goal of Thierry Henry's record. So that put him on 50 goals for France. Thierry Henry was on 51. And you can rest assured that by the end of the evening, Olivier Giroud had gone further in trying to take that outright record as France's uh, all-time scorer. Um because on 71 minutes, he powered another, uh, well, he powered a brilliant header into the back of the net. That was France's fourth. And in between those two Giroud goals was a header from Kylian Mbappe as well. So a comprehensive victory uh, for the French in the end. Um, and and obviously a, a really good night for Olivier Giroud, who's now on 51 goals, uh, the same as Thierry Henry. And he'll be looking to surpass him, I'm sure at the earliest opportunity. Just quickly on Giroud, he is someone for me that, you know, a lot of Arsenal fans went off of when he, no, actually, let me let me start this again, right? Let's do the full Giroud cycle. So we brought him in. Nobody really knew an awful lot about him. He'd had a good season in France the year prior and people were like, okay, let's give this a chance. I think, what was it? 
12, 13 million pounds. It wasn't a a lot of money really in terms of bringing in a striker. He had some great games for Arsenal, but he also had some, some difficult times. Didn't always score enough goals. I always thought was great at linking up play. I always thought it was a great option off of the bench when we were chasing a goal. He was someone that gave us something different, gave us a target, gave us somebody to aim at in the penalty area. Um, and then obviously when sort of it was clear that Lacazette and Aubameyang were, were both ahead of him, he moved on. And, you know, credit to Olivier Giroud because he keeps going at this age. He keeps going. He keeps silencing the critics. He keeps proving the doubters wrong. He keeps popping up in big moments and scoring big, big goals. And what I've just discussed about his scoring record for France is, is the proof in the pudding. You know, he's someone that can do it at the highest level. He's been great uh, for Milan over in Italy. He was good for Chelsea at certain points. But a lot of Arsenal fans went off of Giroud when, of course, he celebrated winning the Europa League with Chelsea at Arsenal's expense. And listen, at the end of the day, it got under my skin at the time as an Arsenal fan. It would. But why isn't he entitled to celebrate with his team? You know, he's just won a major European competition. Why wasn't he entitled to to do that? I mean, people will say that maybe some of the things that he did, some of the videos that came out afterwards showed a lack of respect to Arsenal and the Arsenal fans. The truth is most Arsenal fans were on his back by the time he left. So I don't really get why people sort of, I I, I like that, you know, like they're really critical of someone, they're really abusive towards someone. And then they expect that same someone when they get an opportunity to gloat or brag or or rub your face in it, that they're just going to pass up that opportunity and be the bigger person. If you can't be the bigger person in the first place, then can you really be critical of someone else choosing to take that same road that you did? I don't know. But for me, you know, I've always admired Olivier Giroud. I'm a big follower of Italian football, as you guys know, and I've really admired the job he's done for AC Milan. I think he's a top, top player. Um, seems a, a real professional as well. And um, yeah, doesn't always get the credit he deserves. Hasn't always been given the flowers that he deserves. But obviously now uh, he's on the verge of uh, achieving something really, really special. And if he can do that, uh, you know, then, well, wow. Um that will that will shut people up once and for all, won't it? Let's just um quickly um go on to the list of all time goal scorers because um I just want to kind of to put into context what an achievement this would be if uh, Olivier Giroud does manage to go um on and and sort of surpass uh, Thierry Henry. Obviously, they're level now on fifty one goals, but think of some of the names that are on this list, right? I'll just read a few of them to you. Michel Platini, one of the all-time greats. Karim Benzema is on there. David Trezeguet is on there. Zinedine Zidane. Jean-Pierre Papin. Just Fontaine. Kylian Mbappe is is in the top 10. Yuri Jokaev. There there are so many amazing names on that list. And if Olivier Giroud ends up at the top of the pile, whether you like him or not, whether you think he's one-dimensional or not, whether you're still not over his celebration, uh, with Chelsea having won the Europa League, then whatever. But you have to accept and acknowledge that what he'd have gone on to achieve for someone who played at that or started playing at the highest level at a really late age, this would be an incredible achievement. And um, you know, I, I hope he does it. I, I do. Listen, it's not anything against Thierry Henry. Like they're on level now, anyway. Um, you know, Thierry Henry will always be remembered as a great for all the brilliant things he did outside of the national team, as well as with them. But for Olivier Giroud, a player that people 
still have debates about, I think that would just end that debate for him, wouldn't it? And it would put him in a place where he can, you know, he can always be regarded with the respect that, that he deserves, in my opinion. So obviously I don't want to see Thierry Henry knocked off his perch, but it's going to happen. So we might as well embrace it and we might as well, um, you know, give give uh, Olivier Giroud his plaudits because God knows he deserves them. Okay, so those were today's games. Let's have a quick chat about some of the news breaking this evening because there's a few bits of news, actually. Let's start uh, non-World Cup related. Just quickly, Cristiano Ronaldo and Manchester United have agreed uh, mutually to go their separate ways. It looks like that mad, nuts, crazy, whatever you want to call it, out there interview that Cristiano Ronaldo gave has done the trick because he's found a way um, of getting out of Manchester United. Manchester United would have looked weak if they didn't act on this and wouldn't have looked, you know, poor if they didn't sort of take some sort of action. So they had to, their hand was forced, but at the same time, it gives Cristiano Ronaldo what he wanted. And that's a clean break from the club. At the same time though, Manchester United, if what Ronaldo says is true, we're looking for a way to get him out anyway. So perhaps this worked out in the best way for everybody in the end, but still a bonkers interview, still a crazy thing to do, still something I really disagree with. Uh, but anyway, it's done now. And so Ronaldo leaves. But perhaps more significantly for Manchester United supporters this evening, the Glazers have announced or will announce, it's been reported that they will announce on Tuesday that they are going to sell on Tuesday. It is Tuesday in the coming days, uh, possibly on Wednesday, that they are going to sell Manchester United, that they are looking to sell Manchester United. The United fans have been campaigning to get them lot out of their club for ages and ages and ages. And perhaps they're finally going to be getting their wish. Now, American owners uprooting and leaving. Is that a consequence of the collapse of the Super League? Maybe. Um, I don't know. But it's interesting that Liverpool are also up for sale. And uh, if you're a, a billionaire situated somewhere, uh, oil rich, looking for a football club to go out and purchase, you might have had your eyes on Liverpool, but does Manchester United coming onto the market potentially change your view? They're a much bigger brand. They're a much bigger global club. And so maybe, but also equally, they'll be much more expensive than Liverpool on that basis. Look, they're both huge football clubs, but United, I think, are a, a, a bit bigger at this moment in time. And I think uh, despite their lack of success on the pitch, are a marketing juggernaut based on the fact that they had a long period of sustained success in the not too distant past. Now, Liverpool have had great success as well, but it came earlier. You know, they've only won one league title in the last 30 years. Manchester United have won a hell of a lot of Premier League titles. And, and so perhaps that appeals to people. And, and that obviously coincided with the globalisation of the Premier League as well, which means naturally uh, they're probably going to have gained a lot more support around the world as well as here in the UK off the back of that. So big news there. Uh, but England-related news um, pertains to Harry Kane because it has been revealed this evening that Harry Kane uh, has of, or will, of course, undergo a scan for an ankle problem, which could see him miss the remainder of the tournament. I touched on it earlier. I said it would be a big, big blow for Gareth Southgate's side, and I truly believe that because... Look, Harry Kane didn't score the other day, and I was giving Dan DeLuca some shit the other day, or maybe even today on WhatsApp, saying, like, you know, Harry Kane went missing and he didn't deliver anything, and England scored six goals, and Harry Kane was nowhere to be seen. That's just the Arsenal in me. 
uh, sort of wanting to have a little bit of a dig in it and wanting to have a little bit of a go. But the truth is that Harry Kane's movement and ability to drop into deep areas and intelligence in terms of the way he works the front line facilitated a lot of what England did really well uh, against Iran. And him missing would be a massive, massive blow. But it's a bit like the Arsenal situation. It is comparable because, you know, you look at our striking options, you've got Gabby Jesus, right? You take him out. The alternative is much, much weaker. And I think that's true of England as well. Um, Callum Wilson's a good player, but he's not Harry Kane. You know, Marcus Rashford could play there, but he's not Harry Kane. Uh, you know, so do they go with a, a false nine? Let's just, in fact, let's just bring up England's um, World Cup squad so that I can make sure I'm not missing anyone when talking about the alternative options available uh, to Mr. Southgate. Here we go. So forwards. Um, yeah. I mean, Callum Wilson's the only one that you would say is a, is a centre forward. You know, Rashford, can you do that? Yeah, he probably can do that. Um, but to the same level, no, Rashford is someone that plays in a different way as well. Rashford is someone that wants to run in behind, that has pace to burn, that can run channels. Harry Kane is someone who drops deep. And I think although Harry Kane hasn't got the pace that some of those alternatives have, he's got the intelligence that a lot of them don't to drop into the right areas, to be able to read and understand what's going on around him and play one-touch passes into space for people and and sort of free them of their defensive shackles as well. So, yeah, um, it'll be a big blow for England if indeed he is out. But that news has not been confirmed yet. I'm just going off the back of some reports uh, that are doing the rounds this evening. The Athletic, I think, have reported that the scan is going to happen as well, which gives it a little bit more credibility and, and makes you feel that it's, a, it's a, an accurate story. But we shall see what happens with this. So Harry Kane, a doubt. England's game against USA on Friday. Okay, guys, going to leave it there. Thank you all so much for tuning in to another edition of the World Cup Daily Podcast. Uh, thank you um, so, so much. I know it's late that we're doing these. I know it's not the greatest time, uh, but thank you for tuning in on YouTube. Thank you for listening via the audio. Um, it, it is so, so appreciated and we'll keep you across the World Cup and hopefully we'll have more Arsenal players to talk about uh, in the coming days as well. William Saliba didn't get uh, a game for for France this evening, which is a little bit disappointing when you think about how the French defended at the start of the game. But anyway, it is what it is. Wrap him up on cotton wool. I'm absolutely bloody fine with it. I'll catch you guys all soon. Until next time, take care. All the best. Goodbye. I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon.